0: Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker,
1: you'll find what you came for here
2: and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, trainings, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org.
1: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Cal Newport, is a graduate of MIT and a professor of computer science at Georgetown University. His latest book, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World, is featured in the March-April 2019 edition of Spirituality and Health Magazine, and that's going to be the focus of our conversation today. I read the book, Cal, it's, or I read excerpts that were sent to me, and it's really interesting. I read your blogs on this. This is something I'm very excited. So thank you very much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Of course. It's my pleasure. All right. So let me start with a confession. There are moments, there are lots of moments when I want to stomp on my iPhone, throw my iPad into Stone's River, hurl my MacBook off a cliff and knock my iMac off my desk, and hopefully it shatters. I mean, I, this equipment is an essential part of my life and the bane of my existence. I mean, the only thing that stops me from doing all that is wondering what I would do with the Apple earbuds after I destroyed all the equipment. So does that make me a digital minimalist or just a Luddite?
2: Well, I think that puts you in a good situation to consider digital minimalism, because that reaction basically encapsulates the same unease that I picked up across our whole culture, which is basically, it's not that the technology is useless. So the question is not about utility. It's much more about autonomy. So people's concern is not what I'm doing when I'm on my phone is terrible, or that I hate what I'm doing when I'm looking at my screen. It's the fact that they're spending more time looking at the screen than they know is useful, more time looking at the screen than they know is healthy, and they know that it's to the detriment of other things that are more important. So it's this sense of diminishing humanity, not a particular technical argument about is this app useful or not, or is this device useful or not, that seems to be making people have similar reactions to what you're experiencing.
1: So that's an interesting way of looking at diminishing humanity. I mean, we think, I'm speaking for myself, I think when I get these devices, it's going to enhance my life. But saying it's diminishing my humanity or diminishing our humanity is really a damning statement about the technology itself. Well, once you start using it much more than you want to, which
2: is the issue that a lot of people are having, that's when your humanity begins to be diminished because you're no longer in full control over how you want to spend your time, what's important to you, what's the life that you're trying to cultivate. So digital minimalism is a philosophy that says, enough of that. We're basically going to start from scratch, clear the decks of all the clutter in your personal digital life, and then rebuild it very carefully, very intentionally, very selectively, with the things that you really care about as the goal, as opposed to the more haphazard accretion of apps and service and gadgets that we all underwent over the last decade or so that hasn't ended up that well.
1: Right, because the stuff just uh, grabs your attention. Oh, I got to put that on my phone, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't add weight. So it, uh, it seems like I haven't got, you know, it's, it's no big deal that I've got all this stuff on the phone. I, I wonder when I'm using the, the, the devices or, or the apps, especially with something like Facebook and Twitter, and I, I rarely use Facebook, but Twitter I do daily. Uh, I wonder who's using whom. I get the sense that I work for them, you know, that I'm providing them with free content, I'm providing them with all this data about me, that you know, I, I I'm basically slave labor for them. Does that ring a bell or am I just overreacting? I think that's
2: absolutely true. And the more I looked into the details of how these services run and how they make money the more concerning it actually became. If you look closer, it actually gets darker, not lighter. If you consider Facebook, for example, when this first came out, Facebook was a relatively static experience. You maybe posted whatever your relationship status, your favorite books. You would occasionally log on on your web browser, maybe see what your friends were up to. But if you checked in, let's say, Monday morning, there'd be no reason to check back again until, let's say, Wednesday, because it just didn't change that much. And then sometime around the point where Facebook's investors got antsy and said, where's our 100x return on the seed capital we gave you? We need our big IPO. Facebook said, okay, okay, we know we owe this to you, but we have to get our revenue numbers way up. How are we going to get our revenue numbers way up? They completely re-engineered the experience. So gone was the original social media experience of you post things about yourself and other people come along occasionally to see what you posted. And they replaced it with this experience that, Every time you click on the app, there's this stream of lightweight social approval indicators about you coming at you. This is why the like button has been really, really powerful for the user engagement minutes that Facebook gets. People clicking like gives you the stream of little indicators. Someone's thinking about you. They invested a lot of money into auto tagging people in photos because getting that notification. Someone puts you in a photo. Someone posted a photo about you. That's another little bit of reward that can come at you. And so they completely re engineer the experience. So now it's more like a slot machine. Every time you hit this app, you may see little indicators that someone's thinking about you. And it's almost impossible for our brain to resist that type of reward. That was entirely arbitrary. That had nothing to do with demands from the users or making the user experience better. They made it into a compulsive use app because they needed those engagement minutes for the IPO to succeed. So, yeah, we really are the product in the Facebook scheme
1: so when i'm looking at facebook and and again that's that's a bad example because I rarely go on Facebook. Facebook for me is just for work. I have to you know let people know what's going on uh, and and tell them about retreats I'm running and books I'm publishing and that kind of thing. but I never either on Facebook or twitter I don't look at comments i don't I probably probably shouldn't admit this. I don't really care what people think. You know, I put out what I put out, and I said what I said. And if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. I'm not looking for that. Oh, I'm liked, but I recognize in in other people that I know the likes really matter to them. It's like a, some kind of self validation. I, you know, I'm liked, therefore I am. You know, to play on Descartes is is it as bad as it sounds when when i'm thinking of people their self esteem being determined by you know anonymous clicks on the thumbs up button
2: well it's a really unfair fight i mean it's playing with psychological vulnerabilities it's almost impossible given the way that our brain is structured you know if i tell someone if you touch this button you can find out things people are saying or thinking about you the way we're wired is that it's Really, really hard not to press that button, and that is the the psychological vulnerability that became the foundation of Facebook's rise from this small startup to a 500 billion dollar company. And so, a lot of social media platforms like Facebook, like Instagram, have leveraged this psychological vulnerability to get their usage way up. Twitter is a different story. Twitter's playing more on the limbic emotional systems, so they set it up so that every time you pull their slot machine handle, which is swiping up or swiping down to refresh the feed. You might see something that charges you, right? It might be something that gets you really upset or something that's like really weird and funny, but it's going to give you a sharp spark of emotional reaction with algorithms sifting through it to help find the most provoking things and help put them to the top of what you're looking at. So it's playing with a different psychological vulnerability. But in both cases, you have a lot of money being spent on people to understand how does the human brain work and how can we exploit that knowledge to keep that brain looking at the screen as much as possible.
1: I mean, that's so interesting to me because you want to believe that technology is to enhance the, I guess you say, the brain's capacity. I mean, I know from Marshall McLuhan, every enhancement, it also has something that it's taking away. But the thought that, that, that there's actually people in a cubicle somewhere, in a sense, trying to figure out how to hack our brain to keep us glued to a screen so they can sell data to some corporation that can then sell me you know whatever they sell just seems really orwellian to me it's like big brother is watching i know that amazon is always listening or or alexa is listening and all these it, it's it's like i'm volunteer I'm, I'm i'm volunteering to be spied on all the time it's it's not big brother in, in you know in orwell's book he, he, it's it's through fear and intimidation that big brother runs the operation here it's by giving you eye candy and, and the psychological hits of, I guess, maybe endorphins or something when, when, you, when you see that you've got uh, people liking what you're posting. Is, right. is, do you expect there's going to be a, a time when people go, wait a minute, what have we done? Or is it too late? Are we just so sucked into this, they understand us so well that we are simply... The algorithms are now in charge, and we really are losing our whole sense of free will. And yes, I'm being really melodramatic, but it seems to me that's what it is.
0: Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence a weekend workshop, May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: because I've been writing and speaking about these issues for years. And until recently, people mainly thought I was eccentric. <laughs> what, you've never had a social media account. They would look at me almost with either confusion or pity. And that's changed maybe in the last year and a half, the two years of since that there's this unease has hit this tipping point where people are looking for change. Now, I think the good news is, is the change is actually not nearly as hard as we might suspect. The thing in this whole equation that I think is unusual and arbitrary and fragile, is this notion that we need to create private versions of the internet that are controlled by a small number of very large companies, and that we all have to use these private internets, which is basically what Facebook is. They're saying, okay, the internet exists, the social internet exists, people like me have for years used the internet to connect with people, express ourselves, and find interesting ideas, but they're saying, that's too hard for you, it's too scary, you have to come into our walled garden. You have to come into our private of the private version of the internet that we've made easier. Oh, by the way, we're gonna watch every single thing you do. <laughs> we're gonna collect data on every single possible thing you do and we're gonna sell it. But don't worry about that because the real internet is scary. I think that is the unusual thing. It's just like AOL tried to do this in the 90s.
1: Sure, they said the world of that.
2: Yeah, the world wide web's scary. You have to download a web browser and, and the web pages kind of look weird. Stick within our walled garden, right? And and we'll handle it for you. And eventually people said, I don't know. That kind of weird, decentralized, interesting, exuberant internet outside of your walls seems a lot more interesting than people left. I think the same thing can happen with social media. You can use the internet to connect with people, express yourself, and find interesting ideas without having to play in this playground constructed by a $500 billion company. And so I think the aberration in the the history of the internet is going to be, remember how we had these brief periods where we believed that we needed to let large companies build their own versions of the internet for us to use wasn't that silly we keep trying that that keeps going away so i'm optimistic that we can we can extract all of the the great value and, and interest that can come out of the internet without having to remain in this sort of Aldous Huxley type world where we're being sort of entertained by algorithms while slowly having our value drained and ossified into the stock price of three
1: or four companies yeah right i mean and and you're, and you're right it it's not really Orwell, Orwell. That's the problem. It's Huxley. That's the problem. It's that we're volunteering to do this because it gives us pleasure. Um, I mean, eventually, I'm assuming they're going to come up with the technology so you can have feelies and smellies and all that coming out of your phone, and you are you're just doomed. So let, let's talk about phones for a second because you wrote this really interesting on, on your blog. You have this interesting thing where you you. Um, he wrote a blog piece called Are Smartphones Necessary Anymore? And it really uh, you know, flipped a switch in my head because I periodically go to my um, wireless carrier and I wander around with the giant iPhone in my pocket. The, you know, the, I, I have the newest and the, the, you know, the biggest in my pocket and I'm looking at flip phones because I have flip phone envy could I just get rid of this thing and just get a little flip phone like, you know, like they had on the original Star Trek, something very simple that didn't take pictures. and But then, so how would, how would you do that? I mean, obviously you can do it, it's, they're still selling them. But what do you have in mind with all the things that the phone does? Why would I be better off going for a, a flip phone rather than a smartphone?
2: Well, it's worth remembering the history of the smartphone. Before we had iPhones, the whole reason that smartphones were invented, it was for business users. And the idea was the laptops at the time were really big and they're really bulky. Um, and there wasn't really a lot of Wi-Fi, right? So you could have your laptop, but it was it was hard to find a place to connect. And so the idea of the original smartphone was if you're a business person and you're away from your office, we can put some functionality on your phone so that you could still check in and do some things. And that makes a big difference. You know, Being able to not check in at all versus being able to check in once or twice made a big productivity difference. And there wasn't really another option to connect when you're away from your office. That was the original vision of the smartphone. That vision is no longer that relevant because we have devices like tablets or Chromebooks or very thin MacBook Airs that can do all the stuff you need at the office much better, sort of full power, and they're very lightweight, and they can also connect wirelessly, and they're they're better to work with than a phone. So the original business motivation for a smartphone went away. Then we had Steve Jobs come along in 2007 and say, okay, let's do a consumer-facing smartphone, not about business, but as I wrote in you know, the New York Times recently, Steve Jobs' original vision was, okay, what I'm going to do with the iPhone is two things. I I want to combine your iPod and your flip phone so you don't have to carry two devices. And I want to make the experience of making calls better because I think I don't like the interfaces on these these other existing cell phones. We can make these things you already like to do. We can make the experience better. And that was the original vision of the consumer-facing iPhone. This new thing we have, which is the, the phone needs to be a constant companion Like something that you look at, like an air traffic controller and monitor information all day (laughs) and send your thoughts out into the atmosphere. Like this is so arbitrary. That's so unusual. It has nothing to do with either of the original business or consumer facing visions of the smartphone. And so we shouldn't be so afraid to consider alternatives. And I've met a lot of digital minimalists who don't use smartphones anymore. Um, One of them is a young woman named Laura. She's a, a Mennonite, actually, from uh, but she is a sort of urban Mennonite to describe herself so that she she lives in a city and is a schoolteacher. Um, but because she's very serious about community and she worries about phones distracting her from family friends, she doesn't have a smartphone. I said, well, how do you do it? And she's like, well, I print out directions before I leave. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> much her answer. And it has not been an issue. I mean, the idea that we need this constant companion model, it's like four or five years old. There's nowhere that says that this is this is ingrained in our culture. We're not too far down that rabbit hole that you have to have this constant information companion that you're you're getting this flow through. That's that's more arbitrary than I think we realize.
1: So I have to ask you, what kind of phone do you have?
2: Uh, I have an old generation iPhone that my wife got me when our first kid was born because she wanted to send photos. I guess you can send photos in the text messaging, which yeah. I do appreciate sure. because I miss my kids when I'm away and <laughs> I do like to see them. Um, but I don't know what version it is. All I know is it looks small compared to the things I see today.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, I'm sure they're so much smaller than what I've got. We're, we're gonna run up against our, our end time here. And I, and I really wanna get to one other thing because it has some real practical, I think, applications for, for listeners. Uh, I guess it was near the the very end of December last last month, twenty eighteen. You came up to the end of the year and you put out this invitation to join Analog Social Media. So explain that to us, and then tell us, you know, uh, well, I mean, it'll be clear once you explain how we can join it. But what do you have in mind?
2: So Analog Social Media is getting the things that people say they like out of social media out of actual real world activities, the stuff we we did before (laughs) five years ago, (laughs) when social media use became widespread. So uh, people like social media because it lets them connect to people. The analog social media equivalent is go spend time with people in the real world. Uh, They also like that it exposes people to say interesting ideas. Go expose yourself to interesting things in the real world. They say they like it because it lets you express yourself go express yourself in the real world (laughs) Uh, the point being that all the science is clear is that when you take these activities and do them in real life with real people that you can see and that they're right there and you're actually confronting the world and manipulating it with your hands and, and seeing real objects with real gravity and not just a screen the value we get out of it is exponentially larger and nothing we do on the screen comes close to replicating the satisfaction or meaning we get out of actually being in the world and acting intentionally so I'm a huge fan of social media, but I just like the type that doesn't require a digital screen or an internet connection.
1: Yeah, analog social media. I, that, I, that, you know, I, I knew what it was. At the, oh, that is so retro <laughs> four years ago, like you said. you know, It's like, wow, what a revolution. Actually go be with some human being instead of just looking at, I mean, go, go out to lunch with someone rather than looking at some friend's photo of what they're eating. So yeah, very interesting. Last thoughts if If you were going to tell our listeners one thing, just do this to get started as a digital minimalist, what would you suggest we do?
2: Well, I suggest a big plunge. The, the The big plunge I push in the book is that do a full declutter. Step away from all these clutter technologies in your personal life. Take a break for a month and then rebuild it from scratch, only letting back in, the things that are really, really valuable and being okay missing out on everything else. It's basically Mary Kondo, except for apps instead of old pairs of blue jeans.
1: So really strip all the apps away, because Mary Kondo says, you know, if they bring you joy, keep them, but then they'll all bring us joy because they're all designed to give us that, that you know, endorphin or whatever, dop- dopamine hit. So, so you mean actually just wipe them all off your phone and then a month later, slowly see what needs to go back?
2: Yeah, and have a high threshold. So the the threshold that that I I pitch, and I walked 1,600 people through this experiment last year, so I have a lot of sort of data on this, but the threshold that seems to work is, you first identify, these are the things that matter to me. These are my values. These are the five or six things I wanna do with my time here on Earth when I'm not working. And your threshold then, when something wants to work its way back into your life is, is this the best way to use technology to support this thing i really care about and if the answer is no you say no thank you and look for a better option
1: okay that's where we start that's very it sounds great it sounds easy and i'm sweating so who knows if i can actually do it our guest today cal newport is the author of digital minimalism choosing a focused life in a noisy world he is featured or uh, an excerpt from the book is featured in the March-April 2019 issue of Spirituality and Health Magazine. Cal, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations.
2: Thank you. I enjoyed it.
1: Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health Magazine. Our producer is Ezra Baker and our executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.